The Pre-Paces podcast is brought to you by two brilliant sponsors. Paces Ahead is a fantastic four-day face-to-face paces course run in Brentford, London. They bring you a whole host of patients with fascinating stories and reliable signs, and these patients are absolutely delighted to allow you to hone your exam skills prior to exam day. Some of the patients actually are used in the exams themselves. And the next courses are running from the 20th to the 23rd of May. And then I will be helping out on the course running on the 28th to the 31st of May. Please do come and say hello. I'd love to have a chat and hopefully help you on your way to passing your paces. But if you can't make the course for whatever reason, our other sponsor, Pass Test, has got you covered with their market-leading online revision resource. There are tons of videos which help you revise from the comfort of your own home. And most listeners that I've spoken to have said this is equally essential for your Pacer's success. But that's enough for me for now. Let's get into this week's episode of the Pre-Pacer's Podcast. Welcome back, team, to the Pre-Paces podcast. And as we head into December and towards the end of 2021, I just wanted to say a massive thank you to everyone who has listened to the show throughout the year. If you had told me when I published the first episode of the podcast in January that by the end of the year that I'd have thousands of listeners that come from all over the world, I'd have been absolutely delighted. So a huge thank you for listening wherever and however you choose to listen Special shout-outs have to go to a few loyal listeners who shared the love on our Twitter feed. So thank you so much to Azam, Despina, Elvira and Vikram for sharing their end-of-year Spotify raps where the Pre-Paces podcast was their top podcast of the year. It's that sort of positive energy that keeps the podcast being produced. So thank you again, guys. And without further ado, let's get into the show. Welcome to the Pre-Paces podcast. Dr. Sam Williams here, and today in our quest to help you towards passing the MRCP Paces, we have a communication station special in store for you. This episode is taking a comprehensive look at the types of difficult conversations that you might be asked to take the lead on in a communication station or a station four. But I'm in no doubt that some of the things we talk about today will also come in useful in your own clinical practice. Joining us to discuss this topic is Dr. John Platt. John is a consultant geriatrician and stroke physician at West Middlesex University Hospital and has extensive experience in managing these types of difficult conversations throughout his extensive career, which spans over 30 years of NHS service as a consultant. So, John, thank you so much for joining us. I'm glad to be here. Thank you very much. I hope I can help. And I've no doubt you will be able to. And not only will you be able to help us tackle this difficult paces station, but you will be also be tackling my regular feature of Quiz the Consultant. This is the quiz mm-hmm. where our consultants take on a number of questions on a specialist subject of their own choosing with the proviso that it can't be to do with medicine. So, John, what have you named as your specialist subject? Well, I've named something a bit obscure. I'm quite interested in Dr. Samuel Johnson, who's not a medical doctor. And I've done a lot of reading and presentations on this 
person. He was uh, quite a character. And just for the people who may not know exactly what Dr. Samuel Johnson or what field he was in, can you give us sort of a an elevator pitch? Who was he? What What's his significance? He's a, he's a man for, born in Lichfield in the Midlands who came to London and uh, wrote one of the first massive dictionaries of the English language. And he was he was also quite um, had quite strong views on things like anti-slavery. And he looked after a lot of people in his own home. So he's quite a colourful character who I've just, I've just been interested in most of my adult life, I suppose. And one thing I'd say is this is such a brilliant topic for Quiz the Consultant because it just shows the breadth of things which consultants can be interested in. So this is something completely <laughs> new for me. I've no doubt yes. it'll be of some interest to our listeners as well. Okay. okay. So let's get started on this episode talking about difficult conversations. So, John, to start off, yeah. why do you think communication stations still play such a major part in PACES, and particularly with respect to some of the difficult conversations we're going to discuss through the episode? In medicine, communication skills are very important uh, most of the complaints we get are, as people will know, relate to communication problems. Um, your life will be very much easier as well if you can communicate well with patients and relatives. And I think I think uh, it's a, it's such a key generic skill which everybody knows from medical student upwards in terms of how people are going to perform in their job. Um, so I think it's it's absolutely vital that, that there's harmony in the way that people that communication happens and if there's not, not harmony how you deal with it and how you um, improve the, the situation by um, keeping the communication going between you and family members yeah absolutely and the one thing i would say about this station in particular is that often people perceive the communication station to be the inverted commas easier stations but all i would say about that is is that the examiners will therefore expect you to perform well and so it's very yeah. easy if you don't perform well to then essentially tread on a banana skin and get the wrong end of the stick mm -hmm. so really important to be as switched on as possible in these types of stations and the focus of this episode is difficult conversations. And some of the things we're going to talk about um, are, are going to involve end-of-life decisions. But we're going to start off talking about disclosing a decision of a DNAR to the family. And the likely lead-in for uh, something like this will be a patient has become unwell, they've come into hospital with a given condition, and, and the medical team have decided they should not be for resuscitation. Just to give a bit of background to this, um, the reason this is so important to discuss is a legal case which was in 2014, uh, and the case is called Tracy versus the Cambridgeshire NHS Foundation Hospitals Trust. And the story goes like this. Mrs. Tracy was diagnosed with terminal lung cancer and given a life expectancy of nine months. And then unfortunately, she was in a major road traffic accident later in the same month as her diagnosis. After she was admitted to hospital, a DNAR notice was completed without consulting her family, and the doctors believed that discussions had taken place. However, there was no documentation in the notes of that, and Mrs. Tracy's daughter objected to the DNAR decision, and it was subsequently rescinded. But then after a further deterioration in Mrs. Tracy's health and a further discussion with family, the DNAR was reinstated. The legal claim that was brought against the hospital was that the trust had infringed Mrs. Tracy's human rights by failing to consult 
her family members, and also to notify her of the decision to impose the DNAR decision. The Court of Appeal found that the trust had violated her human rights by failing to involve her with these decisions. And this case informs a lot of the policies which now exist with regard to discussions with patients and their families. So, John, if the station is, as we described, a patient who the medical decision has been to make them DNAR, and let's say you're either advised to speak to the patient or possibly the patient's relative in a PACES style scenario, what are the important facts to establish first early on in the discussion? If, if you're talking to the, the patient's relative, uh, we need to have we need to know what the patient's cons- uh, capacity is, whether they've given consent for you to talk to the relatives. We need to know what the patient, if you're talking to the patient, what, what do the, does the patient know about their background? What, what do they know about their state of health? And, and also that applies to, to the relatives, what's their background knowledge? And to, to, to listen carefully to that before launching into discussions about uh, resuscitation. Then... Actually, I also find it helpful to to know the level of, of knowledge generally about um, a patient, although you're not really going to go into that in the PACES station. For example, if it's a nurse or a doctor, uh, their level of knowledge might be somewhat different and, and your approach might be different. And then and then to listen really carefully, uh, document and document as you're as you're going going through very very meticulously so that those would be the initial things and then and then the explanation about what you mean by resuscitation um which um and avoiding the use of jargon and using terms such as if if their heart suddenly stopped if they died um they're so ill that they might die uh, and one has to introduce that very carefully and sensitively um uh, we, we, we often ask patients in the hospital uh, if they would want the doctors to um, attempt to restart the heart and attempt to uh, bring them back to life, if you like. Um, but um, it, it's, one has to be very careful about saying this and, and reduce. It depends on the situation and not alarm people unduly. Um, and, um, that, and to explain that uh, treatment was not, otherwise is not going to stop if a decision is taken not to resuscitate. Um, and that uh, the success rates may be low depending on the situation that the person's in. Yeah, fantastic. And one thing I would note, you said quite rightly that you should always emphasise you would gain consent from the patient if they had capacity at that time to speak to the relative. One thing thing which I've noticed from um, going through the sample scenarios on the uh, MRCP PACES website is that it often says on the brief, please assume you have been given capacity to speak to the relative. Mm. And whilst it's mm. important to clarify that, it's also um, often detailed on the brief. So so any listeners really just look out for that when you have the brief. And then you've mentioned several important mm. things there that we would need to think about when we disclose DNAR decisions. So as you said, not using jargon. One thing which I try to say as well is, is that they may not necessarily... This may not necessarily apply anytime soon. We don't. We may not think that this patient yeah. is imminently approaching death. Um, and then the other misconceptions are commonly that it doesn't mean we're going to stop active treatment in in a similar sort of uh, way. I think it's sometimes helpful to to say in certain situations that you you would say that this is something that is a fairly routine question that we ask now for people coming into hospital who are quite unwell. Uh, that it's it's not. 
they're not we're not asking this just because of that particular individual we ask doctors and increasingly asking this question to make sure we understand what the patient would like and what the relatives if the patient doesn't have capacity would like and i think the other thing in starting the discussion is to make absolutely sure that you're Maybe, you know, how are you? I think if it's the relative, how are you feeling? You're going through a difficult situation, your family member's in hospital. Um, do you mind if we talk about this rather than launching into something? I'm sure everyone will do that, but there may be some people that are quite abrupt in the way they talk to people. The other thing which I find family members often respond to a lot better as well, which is something definitely worth mentioning, is the quality of life afterwards if we were yes. successful with resuscitation. Mm, yes. Yeah, I think I think that I've found myself saying that compared with how they are now, which is in some situations is going to be pretty seriously ill for example if i had a severe stroke it's highly unlikely that the, the person will be better than they are now in fact it's very likely that they'll be worse than they are now if they survived the resuscitation attempt and it is very likely perhaps that they will be on uh, need intensive care treatment following the uh, resuscitation attempt um I, I tend to use words like likely or very likely rather than being very definite about things because there's all there's there's always some uncertainty um and try and use these kind of balancing terms when i'm talking to people yeah good advice there and certainly one of the things which i've found is that the family always will always want the best for their relative and so speaking about yes. poor quality of life afterwards often means mm. that they know that the the their relative wouldn't want to be in a state where they're worse off and then paces being paces, obviously it's not maybe going to be a straightforward discussion of DNAR. There are mm. probably going to be a few road bumps along the way. So, John, what are some of the issues or possibly some of the common questions which might come up um, in this discussion with a, a family member or a relative or maybe the patient themselves about a DNAR decision? As, as I've said before, that, that this may indicate the discussion may wrongly indicate to the family that you're you're giving up on the person that uh, they have an unrealistic expectation about what resuscitation involves based on looking at the media and looking at uh, films and tv um there may be some you know the perception that we're just we're just we're just going to not do anything and just uh, give palliative care I think during the discussion, it's important to have found out whether there had been any previous thoughts, um, discussions at a time when the person wasn't critically ill with the family as to what they would want in the event of um, a, a cardiac arrest. It may be unlikely that they've had such a specific discussion, but it's quite common in my experience for older people to have sometimes said to the family that, if they ever get in that sort of situation where they're, I don't know, brain damaged or uh, suffering from dementia, that they would be, that they would prefer not to have uh, very aggressive treatments and not want to go to be on a ventilator, etc. That that may have happened. It's 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 obviously important to clarify whether they have had that discussion in the past. 
Yeah, absolutely. And what else I would say is, as well as the previously expressed wishes, which might have been explained to the family, there are a couple of mechanisms or or plans which can be put in place, or at least ways that if the patient lacks capacity at a certain time, that we can extend their autonomy into the future. So what else might it be important for the candidates to ask the relatives about in, in a PACES style scenario? I suppose whether they've got a power of attorney for uh, health, health and um, finances, particularly health in this situation, whether the family member that you're talking to has power of attorney to make decisions on behalf of the patient if the patient doesn't have capacity. Um, so I think that would be quite important to to ascertain. Yeah, absolutely, and not only the the lasting power of attorney or LPAs, but also uh, sort of legal advanced decisions or... Uh, advanced directive, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yes, and the evidence that should probably be brought in at a convenient time or sent in in some form so that you actually have some evidence of that. Yeah, and then the last thing, which maybe not something you focus very closely on in paces, but also any spiritual beliefs would be important to ask about as well. Yeah. I mean, in, in general, we, you're not going to go through this in a short pace of session, are you? But I mean, it's one of the most important things in medicine is, I, I think William Osler was one of the people that said it, is, is you're actually, it's very important to know who, who you're treating, um, not just uh, the disease. Um, and that's all about this, uh, their views, their approach to life, their, their intelligence and ability to communicate and understand things and I suppose I don't know how that fits in but you would want to know a little bit more about the person in the background ideally although in an acute situation clearly that's not very appropriate to go into listening to the family member's description of their the patient in the background maybe may give some useful information about about what they would like I wonder if you might be able to sort of maybe give us a couple of uh, approaches to maybe some tricky questions which candidates might be asked if this scenario were to come up. So I think we've already mentioned one of them. So so if we tackle each of these sort of difficult questions in turn, the first of which might Mm. be something like, I think you're giving up on them too soon. So if you're faced with that sort of question, what would your normal approach to managing the discussion with the family member if you're given that sort of question? I mean, the first thing I would be thinking about there would be uh, to explain that we're not giving up on the patient. Um, we're just discussing the a procedure that is done, which has a which does not have a very high success rate, and and it does depend on the situation, and whether that is appropriate for the patient, the patient, and whether that is just going to be potentially just a a distressing and rather cruel situation um, to put them through when we are going to treat them in other respects fully it's just that particular particular situation when if the heart was to suddenly stop beating in fact that they suddenly had died if you like I suppose the other thing is that why why are they saying that Uh, I'd want want to know a little bit more about why they're saying we're giving up on her too soon and let, listen to them. And perhaps if this conversation is very difficult, uh, it's possibly that there's always the possibility of talking to them again when they've had time to think about it with, with a little bit more information. Again, in a very acute situation, that might not be appropriate. But I think um, if we're talking about do, do DNAR decisions 
um, in somebody who's on the ward and it's and there's not likely to be a cardiac arrest at that particular time. I have found it's better to maybe have another discussion the next day, perhaps, unless it's really important to make that decision now. I think that's a perfect uh, answer which the candidates can take into their station. And then mm. just thinking more if it is a particularly tricky station and the family member is not in agreement with that, one of the questions that the candidates might be asked is, what about a second opinion? I don't I don't really think that, you know, you as the doctor have thought this through. Can I get a second opinion for my relative? So what are the sort of issues that you can discuss with them around that? Or what would your approach be to that sort of discussion? First of all, I think they would you would do the best you can and say that you are you are a member of a team and that that team includes some more experienced doctors um, who uh, you can discuss the matter with. And then that more experienced doctor, i.e., for example, the consultant can perhaps come back and talk to them about this. And that if they're not, if they're un- unhappy about this, we are very willing, uh, it's their in- in- entitlement for a second opinion from another consultant but or another team. Um, but um, I think initially, um, you would hope to gather the to get to obtain the trust of the of the person with with you, um, and if that, it, it, I, I would hope that would be an unusual situation. I would have hoped that the, that there would be a good communication uh, between you and the relatives, good enough for them to trust you, and that perhaps they need time to think. Uh, they need to. Um, maybe involve members of the of the team, and then they will be happier. Rather than getting another team involved, but of course they are entitled to a second opinion. And, and as a consultant, rarely uh, this is what happens that people do get another consultant's opinion within the trust, and sometimes even without the trust. But that's very rare. Most of these situations can be dealt with um, just with the one team. Brilliant approach. And the other thing I'd say as well about that is that although it may not happen in your day-to-day practice too often, uh, PACES is always full of things which may not necessarily happen in your day-to-day practice. So always good to just be, be prepared for that approach. One issue which is important to discuss is if a patient either doesn't want to discuss DNAR, and let's say for argument's sake, they have no recorded expressed wishes, no advanced decision, how would you go about managing that sort of situation, a patient who doesn't want to discuss DNAR and there's no additional information available? You could ask if they would like us to discuss this with their trusted member of their family or next of kin. If this doesn't come to fruition and this is not something that they would want, there is an independent, the possibility of involving an IMCA, which is Independent Mental Capacity Advocate, which is, in my experience, often involved with more long-term decisions about, for example, discharge planning, um, but could be involved with this situation. Yeah, definitely. And and probably something more realistic for your day-to-day life rather than a paces station. When you come to the end of this sort of station and you often the first question from the examiners is going to be, do you want to give us a summary of this case? And mm. there's, there's always one thing which you need to mention at the end of this station that you would do. So, John, what, what is it absolutely critical that you that you mentioned to the examiners that you would do to finish off the case? 
I mean, one of the things is, is the documentation of any discussion very clearly and very accurately and to, to note down exactly who you've spoken to and, and, and possibly even how long you've spent uh, discussing matters. A consultant I work with as a registrar used to hold up his biro and say, this is my greatest friend. Um, nowadays, he's probably typing in the electronic record. This is the computer's your greatest friend. In other words, a lot of problems for you are going to be made much easier if you've made very good notes about the difficult situations like this. Yeah, fantastic advice. <laughs> So we're going to now move on to a slightly different scenario, which is regarding the withdrawal of care. And this is particularly pertinent with reference to fluids and NG feeding. The lead in forestation like this is probably a patient who has a terminal diagnosis, maybe something like end stage dementia or possibly something like a severe disabling stroke. Again, just to discuss the background to why this is an important case. The legal background is a case Airedale NHS Trust versus Bland from 1993. Uh, And the story is that Bland was a 17-year-old man injured in the Hillsborough disaster and was left in a persistent vegetative state for about two years, being peg-fed and showing essentially no signs of improvement with what looked like very little quality of life. The doctors that were treating Bland were granted approval to remove the tube that was feeding him. The issues around this is that a patient in a persistent vegetative state can't withhold or offer consent for treatment in the same way that any patient who lacks capacity. This means the doctors have to act in the best interests of the patient. And in this legal case, it was whether the continuation of Bland being on life support was in his best interests. And the underpinning principle of this is understanding whether life support could ever be withdrawn from a person who cannot provide medical professionals with informed consent on a specific issue. And the outcome was that the doctors have a duty to act in the best interests of the patient, but this does not always necessarily require them to prolong life on the basis that there was no potential for improvement in this case the treatment Bland was receiving was deemed not to be in his best interests. And whilst it's not lawful to cause or accelerate death, in this instance, it was lawful to withhold life-sustaining treatment, which in this instance was uh, the peg feed that Bland was receiving through a tube. So, John, this is a very different scenario to Mm. that of the NAR discussion. So what what are the things which make this a different scenario to uh, having a DNAR discussion? It's a really difficult situation for experienced consultants, this. So I think it's not, I think it's a much more protracted discussion that needs to be uh, had, often with several meetings with family members. It's very emotional, um, withdrawing feeding. It's very difficult to maybe very difficult to get across um, the idea of this quality of life being so poor that you should withdraw feeding there there may be religious elements to this where where you just don't ever stop feeding somebody and in certain parts of the world i think this is a very difficult thing to uh, grasp so it's um 
I think it's much more complex. Um, in, in the world I've lived in, it's mainly to do with things like patients with a very severe stroke who are um, having recurrent um, aspiration pneumonias, etc., and they're not improving neurologically at all. And in fact, they're deteriorating in other ways. And that you you want to stop doing the putting the nasogastric tube in or not going down the line of a peg tube, a feed. So I think I, I try and be concise. I mean, it's it's a much more complex situation. It's difficult, for, perhaps, for families to get their head around than the do not resuscitate situation. It's very emotional. So it's something that if a young doctor um registrar level for you know post paces is involved with it they would definitely be involving the whole team it's not something that they would just be doing by themselves and i think somebody coming into this situation and saying they've got the, you know appearing to have all the answers i think some degree of humility that you would need to uh discuss this you have to have some ideas about what you're going to do and what the right thing is to do but that you would be involving the whole team, including the consultant and possibly even more than one consultant in the decision making. So that's a rather rambling answer to your question, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah, yeah. No, but all the information that the, that the listeners need there, and yeah, I completely agree. This is where Paces becomes slightly contrived in, in the fact that yeah. it's going to happen over a longer period of time than the, than the 15 minutes you yeah. get in in paces but still it's important to like you say know the avenues of treatment for these patients and the really important point about this is something i alluded to whilst discussing the case uh, earlier the bland case is that the withdrawal of treatments is seen as an omission and so because of that withdrawing the treatment can be lawful under the specific circumstances mm. where it's questionable to continue treatments in their best interests when we talk to the family members about this, what are the reasons that we can give them to maybe cushion the blow or, or try and help them understand the reasons that we would be withdrawing treatment from their relative? You're going to have to talk about the the fact that, that, that over this period of time, there's absolutely been absolutely no sign of improvement, that as far as we can tell, that their quality of life is very poor um, and that there's no real prospect from everybody that's seen them of an improvement in future. One should perhaps be considering in the light of all that's happened to them, whether they should be allowed to have a, a, a sort of natural death rather than artificially prolonging their lives. So, John, again, this communication station is maybe extremely challenging for uh, candidates approaching it. So, in the same way as we did for the previous case, there may be some tricky questions which the examiners could throw at you. Um, now, one of these we've already sort of tackled in the DNAR discussion, which is we think you're giving up too soon. And I think the approach for that would more, more or less be the same. You would just have to use the details of the scenario. However, the other question with which we didn't really tackle in, res in response to the last scenario, which may be different in this one, is how do you know the patient isn't going to get any better? Um, I think before going into the interview with the, the relatives, one has to you have to do your homework and see exactly what evidence you've got in the notes that of him, how bad the impairment is, what the opinions are of people that have been to see that the patient, uh, if they've, for example, seen a consultant neurologist, 
Uh, if they've had um, various opinions from people who are expert in, in rehabilitation. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things which I think would hopefully be made very clear is the vignette would paint a very bleak picture. So it might get, have a it might have yeah. a might have a time period associated, saying the patient has been in the same uh, clinical scenario for let's say six to yeah. eight weeks or something like that. No, I think it's quite important. I mean, in this in the situation withdrawal of feedings, I found that you really have to sometimes you have to have a gradual approach. And I found that after two or three meetings, for example, the, the relatives will come to accept the idea of withdrawing feeding. But it may start off with a discussion about getting to go away and think about what you've discussed. And perhaps they might accept the fact that they're going to go on to some just intravenous fluids rather than the feeding for a little while and then gradually, gradually to withdraw that i think it's i think a gradual approach to withdrawing treatment is is the way to do it and sometimes the person if the person is having recurrent episodes for example of aspiration pneumonia a decision first of all to say well when they next have this pneumonia shall we be treating them again uh, or shall we just keep them comfortable and that perhaps leads on to the latter part of your um, discussion um, and, and establish some rules about how far you go with various things and then eventually come on to stopping uh, the feeding rather than doing it all at once. This is a sort of journey the patient and the family are going on and part of it is related to anxiety, grief, stress, which can come across as aggression but it's not aggression, perhaps it's more related to just the natural stress that we would all feel if someone, a member of our family was in this situation, but we haven't yet perhaps experienced it. And then the last challenging question, which I thought would be helpful to look at is um, how long before the patient might die if you're going to withdraw mm. treatment altogether? So in your experience, John, um, what what usually is the timescale from complete withdrawal of, of uh you know, artificial it, hydration and feeding. Well, I, I think it depends on what else is going on with the, with the person if they're at risk of getting recurrent infections, for example. But this can go on for longer than you expect. And sometimes people can live for um, we, a few weeks, a couple of weeks. Um, it's quite surprising sometimes how long it takes. And I think this is why it's important to, at that if that situation is happening, to make absolutely sure that you've got enough palliative care input uh, to the situation as well, if, if there's any need for uh, any other as symptom control, a team-based approach, so that you are involving, that you are being consultative and not just making the decisions yourself, and actually having the involvement of a palliative care team, and that can be quite distressing. The amount of time it takes for someone to to die if they're not getting any fluids. I think it's very difficult to be precise with an individual person, but I have certainly seen people that last that live a lot longer than you would expect. And that may be over a week and it may be over two weeks, but it's it's it, it's very variable according to the individual person. And and actually the, the relatives 
could find that extremely distressing. So I think it's quite important that um, they are perhaps prepared for some uncertainty as to how long it might take, uh, but that you would make absolutely sure that the person is being nursed well and that they're not in any pe- not in any obvious pain. That everyone is being kind and letting people visit, and then any spiritual need that they have is attended to. And then coming towards the examiner questions, which might be at the end of this scenario. Now, a lot of the questions might be similar to those we have discussed earlier, but one of the things specific to this situation might be something like, we've already talked about the arguments which would be in favour of withdrawal of treatment, but what are some of the arguments which would um, advocate against the withdrawal of treatment? The team involved that you're involved with have to be on board. I, I found certainly at times some of the nurses on the ward might not be in agreement with the decision to withdraw feeding, and they may need to there may need to be a careful discussion with everybody to make sure that all are on the same wavelength and that the, that we listen to the to everybody. I always remember a consultant when I was I think um, registrar asking everybody around the on the ward round, including the healthcare assistant and the medical student what they think we should be doing <laughs> so we listen to everybody who's involved with the care of the patient and not just be the detached medical decision maker so i think it can be difficult but ideally people should all be in agreement and sometimes the uh, healthcare members can think that we are doing this as an act to end the life rather than just omitting the treatment as is allowed legally some concerns that um the best interest of the patient is not being met by a family pushing for end, ending ending care, perhaps for financial reasons. Just another shout out for our sponsors, PassTest.com, who have over 100 video cases on their Paces revision resource. And it's at this point we like to tell you about the videos which are directly applicable to what we cover here in our episodes. After a brief look, I found videos involving discussions on end-of-life care and communicating with a family member who disagrees with the management plan. So once you're done listening to the show, head over to pastest.com slash paces and sign up to get full access. So approaching our final scenario, which um, is something we've discussed before on this podcast and this could either be an addendum to the previous scenario or could well be a pace of station on its own and something which every junior doctor will approach at some point in their career. So to be clear, we're talking about a patient who is commencing end of life or commencing palliative care. And the yeah. likely lead in is going to be something very similar to what we've heard of before, but essentially has reached their ceiling of treatment and now is still deteriorating despite that. This may involve incorporating some of the elements from a previous episode of the podcast, which we recorded on breaking bad news. So if listeners wanted a bit more advice on that, please do go back and listen to our episode with Dr. Tessa Nicholas, who gave us a great rundown of the spikes framework with regard to disclosing unfavorable information or breaking bad news. The the, the same principles will apply to this scenario as well. 
in the sense that you're going to need to clarify who you're speaking to, their understanding of the situation so far. And ideally, the family should have a have a clear idea that the patient is extremely unwell. But this may not always be the case in these stations. Um, and so, John, what, what are the key elements of this sort of conversation which the listeners approaching their paces exams need to get absolutely right in this station? We need to make sure that it's quite clear that the diagnosis, if you like, is is that the patient is dying. And I think that can only be, you can explain that by kind of going through a list of all the different problems that they've had and the fact you've tried your best to treat various things, but the situation's getting getting worse and worse. And that there is a choice which can be made now, bearing in mind all the different problems that they've got um, their frailty, perhaps, maybe even their age, although age by itself isn't really a big big thing here. Um, the, the choice could be that we carry on treating like this and keep on treating infections, but the, or, or we choose to uh, em- emphasize the person's comfort. We could, we could look at the situation to make sure that the person was as free of pain and discomfort as possible, if necessary, involve if there is a palliative care team in the hospital to come along and assess and maximize the comfort in the remaining life that they have, albeit short, and perhaps emphasize that's what you're doing. You're trying to improve the quality of their life over the next days or even weeks, rather than talking about just we're going to let them die or they're dying and we just want to withdraw the treatment you've got to maybe there is a positive side of this i think most of us would want to imagine our end days perhaps wrongly we may imagine our end of life as a time when we get the family around and talk to people and um you know enjoy a, some a drink or whatever you want to have uh, to um ease your passage out of this world um but in fact a lot of the time it's not quite like that um and to make sure that um that we uh, ask the, the relatives what they actually would like in this situation what are they missing what can we do to help them to uh, be happier allowing um visits allowing a little bit more freedom really as to um, what normally happens on a hospital ward so that they enjoy some of their remaining life rather than having repeated drips, cannulas, catheters, oxygen tubes, etc. And that there is that choice. And, and I think as w- one of the things I've often said to people is that the decision about how far we go with the treatment is in the hands of us, the doctors, but we would like that if if the person doesn't have capacity, we would like the family members to put their hand on the driving wheel and guide us as we drive the car, if you like, as we drive things along uh, in the best interest of the patient uh, so that then they're part of it. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things which I think is really important to clarify in this station is an mdt approach as well uh, you yeah know, yeah yeah it's not just the ward team looking after the patient you're going to involve other members of the team and the other aspect of that is the prior wishes of the patient which we've discussed already but again this also applies to where they may wish to die yes. so do they wish to die yeah. at home is that going to be feasible you know it, logistically possible um yeah yeah and i think i think 
I've occasionally learnt the lesson from the GPs, and that the, a good GP might, has said to me on this one occasion. I remember, if if we, somebody had contacted me and discussed the patient with me, I've known them for thirty years. I could arrange things in the community. Oh, they'd need help, but I could. We could have arranged for them to come home. And perhaps sometimes people don't um, appreciate the um, what the GPs can actually do to facilitate this and and dying at home is obviously most people's greatest wish so you're right yeah and the other thing just to add on to what you said about accommodating family especially in the covid climate we're working in now this is probably the only time where we would permit sort of unlimited visiting unlimited hours for patients in hospital at the moment so end of life has always meant that people have able to come and see the patient when they come in I thought I thought long and hard about sort of the difficult questions in this sort of station. Um, and, and by and large, we may well have covered questions similar um, already in this episode. But there was one more specifically to this situation, which I thought would be um, important to mention, which is and, and that question is, if you give the patient morphine or so speaking from the point of view of a relative, if you give the patient morphine, will they die more quickly? So how would you approach that, John? I think I would say I would say that we would make sure that we want to make sure the person is comfortable. That would be the priority. It's um, not necessarily the case that by easing pain with analgesics that they're going to die more quickly. But the emphasis isn't dying quickly. It's on, on making sure that their remaining life is comfortable and we don't want them to be in pain. And that if the patient has capacity they can decide how much they want to be on medication. Some people would probably, some people would not want to be on too much medication that might potentially make them confused or drowsy. And I would suggest that we maybe have to say that in the in the old days, and I, I've been practicing for a long time, I do know that... Um, there was a tendency to give large doses of opiates um, and um, and that would possibly um, you know hasten hasten death but the emphasis now is involving specialist teams to avoid any medications not absolutely necessary and just concentrate on comfort if the person's uncomfortable we give more of it and the aim is not to hasten the death the aim is to improve the quality of life and that we we're not in the business of, of giving uh, medication to to end their life i think that pretty much brings us to the end of the content for this episode discussing difficult conversations you might be asked to have in a paces communication station Uh, we have talked about the approach to uh, a dnar discussion with patients and relatives we've talked about withdrawing life-sustaining treatment and then we finished off discussing the starting of palliative care So moving on to a slightly more jovial topic, we're now moving into John's specialist quiz. That's right, it's Quiz the Consultant. Welcome to our regular feature, Quiz the Consultant. Now, one thing that I absolutely love about this feature is that there's such diversity in what our consultants are interested in, and this week is no exception. 
For any new listeners, this is the quiz where our consultant guests answer questions in a quick-fire quiz on a topic of their choosing, but it can't be to do with medicine. So, John, if you could remind the listeners, what have you chosen as our specialist subject and why have you chosen it? I've, I've chosen Dr. Samuel Johnson, who's not a medical doctor, because I've, been, I've read a lot about him over the decades. Um, he's an amusing, there are amusing aspects to him, and also he's a kind of intellectual giant of the 18th century and um, a very quirky sort of person. There's a lot of entertaining uh, literature about him. As I said before, this is a fantastic topic for Quiz the Consultant. And I think I'm right in saying this is the first time where it's been a person rather than a sort of category, if you will. And so so I was going to ask, what first made you so interested in uh, Dr. Samuel Johnson? I think it was when I read about his journey to the Western Isles when it was an SHO, and he he was taken in his sixties to the um, to a journey into Scotland and round the, to the Western Isles for somebody who was kind of uh, bookish and um, wrote this big dictionary uh, to go into the relative wilderness of Scotland with Boswell, who was a very entertaining. Um, it entertainingly described his, um, uh, this giant of the 18th century sort of sleeping on a straw bed in a sort of equivalent of a stables as, it, as it's going around the Scotland of the 1700s. So I, I think it was started with that. And then there was, a, there was a book on his quirky aspects, which I read, which was very amusing. Um, both my wife and I found it very, very amusing. So... As you said, whilst he's a doctor, he's not a medical doctor. And so he still fulfills the criteria of this feature by not being to do with yeah. medicine. So, John, this is how we play the game. There are 10 quick fire questions. Each question you can either answer straight away for two points, or if you're not sure, you can ask for some multiple choice options. And if you get it with the options, you'll get one point. So there's 20 points up for grabs in total. So, 10 questions on Dr. Samuel Johnson. Are you ready? Yes, I'm ready. Question number one. In his childhood, Dr. Johnson contracted scrofula, which nowadays we, we might call infected lymphadenitis. Following consultation with a physician of the time, what was the supposed cure for scrofula? Well, I know that he was he was taken along to be touched by the Queen. Queen Anne. I'm not sure what what they did, but <laughs> that there was a sort of um, expectation that the, the king or queen had some power over curing this. And I think he was given a little token. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. It, uh, it was being touched by a royal for two points. Question number two. Also in his childhood, Johnson demonstrated behaviours consistent with a psychiatric behavioural condition with which he was posthumously diagnosed. Which condition? Well, he's, he was thought possibly to have Tourette syndrome. He had tics and um, muttered, muttered to himself quite a lot and um, moved his arms in a very unusual way. He had very unusual way. When he went across the doorstep sometimes, he'd go backwards and forwards and rock. And he had slightly obsessive behaviours. But I think he was, he was thought to have Tourette syndrome, although it wasn't described at the time. Yeah, absolutely correct. And and that's the reason why it was a, a posthumous diagnosis. Question number three. Probably the work that Johnson is most renowned for labouring over is the creation of his dictionary. But what date was his dictionary published? I think it was 
17, mid 1700s, 1755, I think it was. Yeah, absolutely correct for two points. And it was April 1755. Question number four. In which popular British sitcom was Samuel Johnson portrayed by Robbie Coltrane in an episode called Ink and Incapability, where during the writing of his famous dictionary, the main character reminds him that he's forgotten to include the word aardvark? <laughs> I think there was a Blackadder thing where he mistakenly burnt the dictionary, on the, put it on the fire, and all the work that the dictionary had entailed was went up in smoke yes absolutely it, it was yeah. blackadder i'll give you yeah, full marks for that and i'll also i would have given you blackadder the third as well question number five which oxford college did samuel johnson attend it was um, pembroke college correct for another two points and full marks so far question number six he was initially unable to finish his degree, but why? I think it was poverty. I, I don't think he had enough money from the family to carry on. I, he had to borrow shoes and things like that. So I think he had, he just couldn't carry on because of the lack of money. Yeah, absolutely correct. He couldn't pay the fees for another two points. That's six out of six so far. Question number seven. He was later awarded an honorary master's degree from Oxford. But what was the master's degree he was awarded? Uh, I think it was a degree in law. Um, I might be wrong. I think it was LLB or whatever. It was a degree in law. And then, then he became Dr. Johnson. I think that's what it was. May have got it wrong. So... I, so this is where it falls down a little bit because I'm basing my research on probably half an hour to an hour's worth of uh, research. The master's degree, which I found, or that he was awarded, is just Master of Arts. But I did see somewhere yeah. else that he did also have yeah. an LLB as well. Yeah, um, I don't. I, I'm not sure about that. Yeah, M MA Oxford Cambridge was MA. Whatever yeah. you did. But um, yes, I don't know about that. I'd, you might have to mark me down on that one. Okay, well, what we'll do, we'll do a video assistant referee and then I'll, I'll do some more in-depth research. But let's say we'll give you, we'll yeah. give you a naught for this time, but you may, yeah. uh, you may end up getting the, the two points retrospectively after the video assistant yeah. referee. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, okay, question number eight. How old was... Dr. Johnson when he died in 1784. I think he was 75. Absolutely 1705, correct. 1709, yeah. Yeah, absolutely correct. He was 75. Mm -hmm. And question number nine, finish the quote from Johnson. When a man is tired of London... He is tired of life. For London affords all that I don't, I don't remember the rest of it for L London affords all that man a man could want or something like that yeah I only wanted the tired of life but you know even yeah. more even more admirable to, tr to try and uh, go for the full whack yeah absolutely yeah. that's that's another two points and question number 10 according to interestingliterature.com 
Johnson was known to drink up to 25 of what in one sitting? Cups of tea. He had a, he was from Staffordshire, so I think he had a kind of Midlands accent. He would probably say cups of Thai, Thai or something like that. Um, he did have punch, uh, but at times he was very um, abstemious and wouldn't have alcohol at times. But he was a big tea drinker. Yeah, absolutely correct for another two points. And that is pretty much the end of the quiz, which gives you a near perfect score albeit we are going to double check that question but that is you you clearly have a real passion for dr johnson and it was a real treat to research about him and i've certainly learned a few things and one thing is for sure that drinking up to 25 cups of tea he would have fitted very well (laughs) on on a geriatric ward so thanks john for picking such an amazing quiz the consultant topic your final score is 18 out of 20 and that pretty much brings us to the end of this episode of the Pre-Paces podcast, where we have been delighted to be joined by consultant in geriatrics and stroke medicine, Dr. John Platt, who has been kind enough to give us his thoughts on having difficult conversations over his 30 years of NHS service as a consultant, both in the context of Paces and also in our everyday practice. So, John, thanks so much for joining us again today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. And thank you for those interesting questions. As always, guys, we hope you have enjoyed this episode. We wanted to finish by saying that I'm always looking for new ideas of topics for the show. Obviously, I've got my own ideas we can cover, but I really want to hear from you guys what content you want us to cover so that I can book the appropriate guests, record the episodes, and as a result, give you the best chance to pass paces. Don't forget, you can see our Twitter tutorials on all of our episodes. So if you have a succinct breakdown of what we talk about in any given episode, you can find it there. You can get in touch on Twitter. It's at prepacespodcast or on email. It's prepacespodcast at gmail.com. But for now, we are just about out of time. I have been Dr. Sam Williams, and we will see you next time on the Pre Paces Podcast. <laughs>